wow, it was great. It was the greatest feeling. Wow, here we are recorded. Sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded live at Machine Sound London, this is the Band Before the Band Before podcast, and I'm your host, Chaz Langston, and welcome to episode seven. So I just googled mind-blowing facts about the number seven to, you know, put a bit of trivia into the podcast, and basically, the number one mind-blowing fact on every website is that there are seven days in a week. Now, I don't want to come across as a braggadocious intellectual, but, uh... I already knew that fact, so make it out what you will. Clever, aren't I? So, if you didn't know already, this is the podcast in which we take our guests way back to the very beginning, and we go through their musical journey with them right up until the point until they actually became successful. And our guest today takes us through his incredible journey through a legacy of bands of both cult status and rock and metal legends. During this episode, he tells us how he used to have to record the drums using only two fingers. How his first ever European tour found him detained at Heathrow Airport. How the world music section of Tower Records inspired his drumming style. And how Billie Eilish earned in some serious cool dad points. Now, without further ado, it's time for me to introduce guest number seven of the Band Before the Band Before podcast. From Stone Sour, Ministry, and New York hardcore legends Nausea, and without doubt, one of the best drummers in the world, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Roy Mayorga. Can you speak a little loud? Us drummers are really deaf these days. <laughs> My dude, great to see you, man. Great to see it's you been- too. A long time. Oh, man, I don't think I've seen you in like over 10 years. That was the last time when we all toured together. Yeah. How crazy is that? That's insane. You look really well, man. You look really well. Thank you, man. And you're still in, are you still actually in bed? I just, I swear I just saw a duvet then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's 11 o'clock in the morning on Saturday here. Um, it's got to have a line on a Saturday. Yeah, why not? All right, man. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us where you were born. I was born in Queens, New York, in Forest Hills, to be exact. Home of the Ramones. Home of the Ramones. Yeah. Yep. They're from Forest Hills. Like Joey's house literally was probably about a good 10, 15 blocks from where I grew up. Really? According to him, when I when I knew him, like I we got in a conversation about Forest Hills. He was like, where'd you live? I, I lived closer to uh Woodhaven Boulevard off of Yellowstone and he lived more like a few blocks you know above uh, Queens Boulevard so yeah, it's kind of cool oh, mate that's incredible and uh were you a musical household back in the day not really i mean i mean my parents you know obviously they played records a lot of records when i was growing up they listened to a lot of you know R&B and Motown Beatles anything that was like popular at the moment you know they really they really really into that kind of music I listened to Beatles and Neil Young, Neil Young, Neil Diamond, and you know Burt Bacharach, you know that kind of stuff. That's that's the first bit of music I remember growing up. My dad played guitar a little when he was a little younger. By the time you know we were all together, he wasn't really playing as much because he was busy working. So I guess some of the musical part of me comes from him, and the engineering side definitely comes from him because he's a he was an electronics engineer. Oh really? And- yeah. And did anyone else in your family play any instruments or anything? 
my brother did. He played guitar, and him and I were in bands together in the 80s, like a uh, punk rock band. Is he an older brother? Yeah, he's 10 years older than me. And I think my, my grandmother, she sings. She used to sing, but not nothing like serious. Like, but she can sing, you know, and she can play a little bit of piano. But I didn't pick it up. I didn't pick it up from watching or hearing them. You know, it was more than what I heard on records or what I saw on TV. Right. So you found it naturally, like by yourself. Yeah, it was more all instinct. You know, um, my mom definitely had a, a big hand in that. And in that, with me, like she saw something to me that I didn't even know. I mean, like she knew I was a drummer before I knew. Before I even knew. just keeping beats and always like you know. Just slamming on the edge of the crib or whatever in, in a rhythmic fashion. She's like, okay, this kid's going to be a drummer. I mean, obviously you're known for your being an incredible drummer, but you're a multi-instrumentalist really, aren't you? Was it drums that you learned first? Yeah, that was definitely first for sure. That was, and what came after that was uh, keyboards, pianos. Yeah. Like pretty much, pretty much parallel at the same time. But I didn't get, I didn't get any kind of like a keyboard until I was probably about eight or nine. I inherited my cousin's uh, blow organ. <laughs> air organ is weird. I remember those things, yeah. Yeah. I figured out how to play, you know, the theme to Exorcist, you know, Tubular <laughs> Bells. That's like the first thing I ever learned how to play was that. <laughs> really? I also used to go to the, you know, when I used to go to the mall with my dad on Saturdays or, you know, on the weekends, and I used to go into the Lowry organ store and just play every organ in there. Really? You know, six, six or seven. And, you know, discovered this sound. It's such a great sound. It's electronic, you know, weird sound. At that time, I already kind of knew where the synthesizer was just from seeing it on TV and hearing it and asking my brother what's making that sound. Like, I think the first time I ever really noticed a synthesizer was probably uh, uh, Edgar Winter. Uh, right. The song Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. And that was a Mark 2600, which I didn't know of at the time, but I, I knew I liked the sound. I actually own one now because of that record and many others. But that was probably the first time I really heard a synthesizer. It was just so like into it. But with drums, though, drums is definitely my first love always, you know. And that was, uh, I mean, that was something that was part of my DNA from the beginning, you know, just uh, listening to kiss and black sabbath and acdc those were my bands growing up as a seven-year-old especially kiss just the whole spectacle of what that band looked like and what they sounded like and hearing kiss alive for the first time i think that's probably where i was like i want to do this for the rest of my life that's what that's what got me for sure that record i can remember just playing that record every day after school and playing along to the record with both speakers which I would have facing me 20 years later the same way, like from, from underneath me facing at me as loud as I can go and just hearing that that ambience of a crowd around music. That's what, that's what I always kept in my head, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And I just used that as my thought to get to where I want to go. Right. And how old were you when you got your first drum kit then? Like proper drum kit? Um, probably about, I was eight. My first, like, drum set of drums i got though i was about six years old and it was really like like a toy drum kit like aluminum steel shell drum kit it didn't even come with a snare drum <laughs> it came with two toms a floor and a kick and one cymbal which i'm still actually playing here 
it's the same spot from what I, where oh, I, really? I, I noticed that like not long ago. I'm like, why do I always have my symbol right here? I never have it here. It's always here. And then I was like going through pictures. I'm like, oh, that's why. Because I always <laughs> learn how to play it. So I played that kit for a while, you know, uh, that broke eventually. So a few years later, mom and dad, you know, saved a bunch of money to just get me a proper kit, just a four piece kit. It wasn't even a, a, a name brand. It was just some knockoff, Ludwig knockoff. Oh, really? Which at the time cost a lot of money too, because they, cause back then I don't think a lot of those big drum companies made lower end drums. Right. I think they just made good ones as, as they do now you can buy drum kits great drum kits for like two three hundred bucks back then three hundred dollars was a lot of money in 1977 especially for a drum set of drums that weren't even a name brand you know what i mean yeah didn't have a lot of options but i mean they they worked their fingers to the bone and you know, got me that drum kit and that's how i learned learned everything on that kit are you self-taught oh yeah yeah self-taught um for the most part, but I think around the time when I was eight, when I got that proper drum kit, I did ended up taking lessons for for a month from a rock drummer. Yeah, who was actually a touring drummer at the time. I've been to a couple teachers before him. They're more you know jazz drummers. I was into rock. Right. I wasn't into learning you know traditional grip. You know these teachers would make me try to learn traditional. I'm like I. Didn't want to do that, right? I want to play. I want to play. You know, Jailbreak by ACDC. I don't want to. I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn the. You know, you know whatever he's trying to teach me, like some like jazz kind of stuff. Um, I didn't have appreciation for it then. I do now. I love love all jazz. But um, so I would last like you know a week or two with these drummers, with these teachers, and they're just like, yeah, I can't teach a kid. The kid just doesn't want to sit and learn. And then finally, I found the right teacher, and uh, I was at a local music store. I had a Kiss album on, on, in my hands. I just got this Kiss record, and this guy had a conversation with me. Started talking to me. He goes, "Oh, it's Kids into Kiss. Oh, what do you play? You play drums?" I'm like, "Yeah, I play drums. Looking for a drum teacher. I'm a drum teacher." So I would bring my I bring my records into him every week. He teach me how to play this and that, and, you know, form, technique, and you know. So I stayed with him for about a month. Uh, he went on tour, and I never seen him again. And then I just kind of went and taught myself after that just took what he taught me and yeah. just continued up the rest of my life so back in the early days i know we touched on kiss but can you remember any specific tracks that made you think like right i have to dissect this and learn this well pretty much all of rock and roll over by kiss <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely the first record that i i i remember like i was just really got to get on this record and just learn everything kiss alive um let's see farewell to kings by rush i was really into that record yeah nice um i'm just going chronologically right now it's <laughs> through the years 78 what would i have been listening to then um probably still those records and then by 79 80s when i started really uh listening to more punk right more like ramones and Devo were my gateway to all of that stuff. Really? To all the post-punk stuff like Joy Division and Kill- Killing Joke. I, just keep in mind, I have an older brother, so he was really keeping me you know, up to date with what was on. Yeah. What was up, and he was into all those bands. So I naturally got into that, focused into that. And it was easier for me at the time to grasp it 
you know, it was just such a simple, it's so simple, you know, you know, playing wise and for drumming, it was great. You know, it was like amazing drummers back then in that, in that scene, you know, you had Steve Morris from Joy Division, you had Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke, even Pete DeFreitas from Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, right. guys like that. I like, I love those drummers. Uh, Stuart Copeland from the police, you know, Marky Ramone. Those are the guys I was listening to at that, at that age. Cause I was never going to be as good as the drummers I was listening to. You know, oh, that's then. not yeah. true. <laughs> well, I mean, at the time it's like, it's like those drummers, like, you know, Neil Peart and all those guys and, 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 uh, um, you know, Peter Chris and John Bonham, like they're, I mean, how do you, how am I going to get, how am I going to sound like that? You know, I can't <laughs> sound like that. Not now, you know, I can, I can, I can digest the other, other bands quicker. And I just got into that, you know, and right. I love the vibe of that because I felt like that music, that post-punk music sort of saying to me more, you know, it, it's, it was so underground at the time. And I felt like it, it was my, it was mine. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It appealed more to me. Absolutely. It was cool to me, you know, a lot of people didn't really know it yet. You know. How old will you sort of be around that time? So that would have been like when you were really discovering yourself and discovering music, right? I was about nine or ten. Oh, really? Nineteen eighty is was the was the was the hard hard line cutoff from classic rock all the way to now. I'm just into <laughs> punk and post punk and anything <laughs> that was underground, industrial music before it was even called industrial. It was just noise and you know all this no wave stuff. You know, really thankful to have an older brother that was really into all this cool music and turned me on to some good stuff yeah you know that was where my head was at so it's you shut the fuck up thank you all right man well um let's go back to your first ever live performance do you want to count my first performance i was like 11 in the school band <laughs> <laughs> with several other snare drummers you know right was an orchestra band but um my first proper gig gig yeah would have been 1985. okay man do you remember the venue um the caddyshack the caddyshack in a town in a, in, in, a, in the state of pennsylvania called uh Casagua. it was part of lehigh valley I lived in, I'll get to that in a minute. I lived in Pennsylvania for a few years of my life. Right. My parents got divorced. We couldn't live in New York anymore. So we moved to Pennsylvania. So I ended up there. But my first show was, a cat, it was at the Caddyshack. And we were opening up for a band called Naked Ray Gun. Na I know Naked Ray Gun. Yeah. 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 Wow. So your first ever gig, first ever proper gig, you were opening for Naked first Ray Gun. First proper show. You know that we got paid at, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not like, like twenty bucks, whatever. But first proper show through a PA on a stage, yeah, at a place I would normally go to see shows myself, yeah, Caddyshack. Wow, yeah. and it was was it a bit, super busy gig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Naked Reagan. I think at the time, I think they only had their first album out, which was Throb Throb. That was on. Uh, they're a Homestead Records band. And that was a that was a record in that in our area that I mean everyone loved that band everyone loved that record so it was a big deal for local band like us to open up for those guys you know it was great it was, it was like a it was, it was a it was a real, it was a packed two hundred three hundred seat room just sweaty punk gig you know what I mean man how how old were you when you done that show I must have been fifteen fifteen yeah wow and what was the name of the band Youthquake. Youthquake, yeah, oh, amazing man. How, how was four piece, three piece, four piece, 
Yeah, drums, bass, guitar, vocals. Can you remember any song titles? Uh, we Don't Need, You're the Robot. <laughs> You're the Robot. <laughs> uh, American Escalation, and just a lot of politically dr driven kind of lyrics, um, some social lyrics. I mean, the singer was at the time, I think he was 18 at that time. We were all like, you know, still in high school. Right. I was the youngest one in the band. So it was like 15, 16, 17, and 18. Wow. Can you remember any lyrics? What are the lyrics that are real or we are the robot or you are the can't robot? can't remember any of those lyrics, man, no. right now. <laughs> yeah. But anybody interested in, in, in uh, hearing it, I, I can I can give you the link. <laughs> you can go check it out. There's yeah, a four-track recording of our demo and yours truly playing at 15 years old, a lot of like thrashy punk beats. Amazing. Where did you, where did you record it? We recorded it at this guy's house in his living room in his apartment in somewhere in, in Allentown. And what, like a four track? Yeah. Yeah. I remember he had like a little sub mixer and you would throw like a kick mic in front of uh, a mic in front of the kick, one over one at the snare, one overhead. And you have that like a little three, four channel mixer and then send that into one channel. I think it was like a Tascam four track, one of those Fostex four tracks, bass and guitar vocals as they are on the input and we record it live. Would that have been your first recording session? Yeah. Mate, how did you feel at the time? Did you feel like you were going to take on the world? Oh, it was great. It was the greatest feeling. Wow, here we are recorded. Sounds like shit. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it, sounded, it, sounded, it sounded great. I mean, for, for what it was, I mean, we, we had like, you know, really cheap gear and luckily the guy that recorded us at the time, that was pretty state of the art. You know, he has a little, Four channel mixer and, and a and a and a four channel Tascam recorder and then to us that's like wow, this is great. Yeah, and we recorded it. We made, a, made a couple demos that way. Actually, the first demo we made before even making that one, we did it in my bedroom and I used my brother's drum machine. I had a TR seven hundred seven Roland drum machine. Wow! And I played that. Yeah. So we all connected to my brother's like eight channel mixer, like the guitar player, bass player, vocals. We all went direct. I took the, the TR-707 drum machine and, and uh, just played it. We just played together and he recorded straight to two track in, in a, on cassette. That was our first first demo. Then we got to make a real demo with me playing drums. Right. Two demos out. Yeah. So you basically invented dance punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole thing is that we, there's no other way. We, we had to do whatever we need to do to make it happen. Yeah, of course. What what happened with Youth Quake? How long were you guys going for? Well, we lasted till about uh, uh, eighty seven, and then a bass player left and wasn't interested anymore. And then my brother ended up joining the band as the as the second guitar player, still with the same other guitar player and singer. And we ended up uh, we turned the band into into a Word Made Flesh, and that band was more like uh, Buzzcocks Ruts style. So it went from like a fast, like seven seconds, you know, 1983 style hardcore to 
the late seventies, early eighties, post-punk kind of sound. Yeah. Just naturally just ended up that way. Actually, I think the reason why I think it went, ended up that way is when we all got together for the first time as that lineup, we were covering the song You're Justa by the Ruts. Right. It's off the crack album, which is like one of my favorite albums. I think from there, that, that's what pretty much uh, set our path to what we sounded like after that. Yeah. We didn't sound exactly like the Ruts, but we, it was like that style. And can you remember any song titles from you? Uh, from, what did you say? World Eat Flesh. Word, as in word. Word Eat Flesh. Made. Oh, word flesh. Made flesh. I couldn't have got that any more wrong. Word Made Flesh. Yeah. That's also out there too. I yeah? recently uh, just remastered that. Um, a friend of mine had the the, the raw uh, recording of that. That's also oh, great. drum machine. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> record real drums. So I, I, <laughs> Played the fucking drum machine, <laughs> mate. Old school drum drum programming before it was a thing. Not even it wasn't even programmed. It was like it was laid out on a keyboard through MIDI, and yeah. I was playing it that way, <laughs> like somehow, you know, <laughs> and made it work. We do drum fills as well. Yeah, yeah, fucking great. Using two three strings at the same time to play like kick and snares as this is doing the hi hats, and that's incredible. Had to make it work, yeah. You know, um, so yeah, we we did that for a few years, and then um, that fell apart after a while. And I wanted to leave uh, the area I was in because at that time I knew there was more out there, and I wanted to experience more. I wanted to see more, and I wanted to be in other cities. Like around that time, between like being fifteen to seventeen, I used to come up to New York City a lot and, and go to shows at the Ritz and CBs and dream to be be living there again and be part of the music scene there yeah so before moving back officially to new york um i ended up moving to philly because that, that was the next closest city to us where we were living which i used to also go and hang out and go see shows and hang out in the punk scene there um i didn't really play that much i was look, i was playing around with different bands and couldn't really find anything that could that stuck until my one friend that I lived with towards the end of living in Philly was pretty tight with a lot of bands and people in New York. This guy named Sean Roberts. He was really good friends with this band from New York that I ended up joining later called Nausea. I was really into them at the time. You know, I thought they were great. They were like the New York version of like, you know, Discharge, Crucifix, Crass. It had that right. kind of, you know, totally politically driven band. It was great. So he heard that they're looking for a drummer. And my friend was basically, hey, I, I, I know the guy, you know, he lives with me here and he's looking to come back to New York. You should check him out, try him out. So then he, I borrowed 20 bucks off of him <laughs> to get the, <laughs> the, the, the SEPTA NJ transit train to Port Authority. I just came there with, with, you know, whatever money I had. I think I had five bucks left at that point. Right. I spent the weekend there. I had a pair of sticks on me. That's it. And I showed up at. Wow. Uh, five bucks and there. a pair of sticks. About to yeah. change your life. Yeah. So I ended up uh, meeting up with the bass player, uh, John John, at this after hours, weird secret knock place that would open from like 2.30 in the morning to 8.30. It's a place called Save the Robots. Because <laughs> by, by the time my train would arrive in Port Authority, it would be like 2 in the morning. So you say, just meet me there and hang out and then you can, you know, sleep over. And then the next day we'll, we'll practice. We'll try you out. So then I show up to save the robots. 
<laughs> and let me explain to you what Save the Robots is. Please Total do. underground after hours club. I mean, anybody who's anybody who's there, drag queens, drug dealers, uh, actors, actresses, models, everyone just hung out at this place. It was, it was, it was, a, it was great. So I ended up meeting him there. I ended up staying at our singer's house, Amy, who will also work there. I drove, I drove back with her to Staten Island, where they were, where she was living. And then the next day we went into, uh, went back into the city in Midtown. And I was at a hourly, you know, rehearsal place. And I tried out for them. I learned like five of their songs and, and I got the gig, you know. Amazing. Well, the hang, hang we all had to hang first. If the hang isn't there, then you don't get Yeah, the, of course. Really so of course. We all hit it off. Just, you know, our personalities are just great together. And we all you know, hit it off you know, really, really great in the beginning. And then we just jammed the songs for a couple of hours. And I went back home and I got a call say, hey, man, you got the gig. You should come back up. So I did. I ended up uh, living in, uh, in Staten Island for a minute and then uh, ended up squatting. <laughs> Living anywhere I could until I got my shit together, got a job at Tower Records, and finally got some money, got an apartment. Made my first record, real recording with them in 1989, like a few months later. Amazing. Did they have a deal? We had a deal with this uh, DIY label uh, called Profane Existence, or uh, underground punk label. It was great. At that time, um, uh, it just worked, you know, and we had a, a really cool uh way into this recording studio i think it was called purple light studios or something like that i can't remember i remember it was off of houston and and broadway on the corner of it was like on the third floor and that was like my first real experience in a real recording studio like control room live room yeah that's great you got to play drums with your hands and a kit rather than uh, your fingers on yeah. a keyboard <laughs> yeah like like wow there's mics on my drums you know <laughs> wow What sort of level were they at at that point in time when you joined them? Were you like, were they like a touring band? Not yet. They were more local. They weren't touring yet. So when I joined the band, we made the record. It came out a few months later, like in 1990. Then we got offered to go on tour and we went to Europe. Oh, wow. First time for all of us. Yeah. First time for me ever going on tour ever was Europe. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, was this your own show? The, your own tour oh, yeah it's our own yeah. tour yeah yeah get a whole month booked out you know playing all these squats all over europe punk clubs you know did you come to london we got denied entry you got the <laughs> england denied entry to us yeah no way like they, thought, they thought we were gonna live off the land and this this and that <laughs> and well i'll explain to you what happened there okay our bass player and i were like all right we're gonna tour europe let's go to let's go to england for a couple of weeks before we, you know, before the tour, we could meet up with the rest of the guys in Amsterdam because that's where the tour started. So we had a bunch of friends in England that were willing to put us up for a couple of days, you know, here and there, you know, whatever, from different bands. And when we got there, I think we had like $1,400 between us both, which was enough for two weeks to be in England. Right. Okay. In 1990. Yeah. Um, so they saw that we didn't have an address. They saw we had our friends' addresses and they just thought we looked kind of fishy and they didn't think we had enough money to stay in their country for two weeks. And they were like, well, we, we can't let you in. Like, why not? Like, well, this, this and that. You, you, your friends can't support you. I go, we, we 
they're not supporting us. We have our own money. It's like, well, you, you guys are musicians, right? Yeah. It's like, well, you're going to be here playing music, right? No, we're not. We're here on vacation. And they thought basically, you know, we're, they're like, we're going to be there illegally making. Right. You know, yeah. We weren't. We literally, like, we have a whole, whole tour. We show them our tour itinerary from Europe. I go, this is it. This is all we got. And they're like, well, we can't let you in. So we stayed overnight in the detention in no. Harmonsworth or wherever that is. I guess it's somewhere like in Heathrow area, whatever. Fucking so we, we stayed there overnight, like just freaking out. Got sent back. I lost like $400 because we had to, we had to oh, buy our own man. plane tickets to get over there. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? ended, up, ended up having to sell my drums to get more money to come back. That that hurt. So we bought another set of tickets to come back to Amsterdam and then started the tour from there. What did you do drum-wise for the tour? I borrowed the opening acts drums oh, every night. It was a new kit every night. Really? Oh, That was wow. a challenge. That was a challenge. The <laughs> only thing I brought with me was a snare drum my sticks and my pedals. It's all I own. Fuck. I sold everything else anyway. I didn't yeah. have no symbols, nothing. I had to make money quick to get back to Europe to do this yeah, tour. Yeah. You know, both of us did. Me and John John did. It sucked. Shit. How do we know? How are we supposed to know we're going to get denied entry? I, I didn't think anything of that. You know, it's like we're not we're not trying to you know pull pull something over on anyone. We just want to have a good time. You know, and yeah, hang yeah, out with our friends and experience England. You know. But um, yeah, so then I ended up getting this big black X on a Heathrow stamp on my passport that lasted forever. <laughs> and, and then I found my way. <laughs> but to this day, every time I fly into Heathrow and I go to that same customs uh, um, area, because it's, it's, it's the same one, I still get a little weird anxiety. Like, yeah, oh. <laughs> I bet. I bet. With every band I've ever been through it, and I always tell every band this story what happened. They're like, I go, see that podium right there? That's what we got denied. <laughs> It's ruined me. I bet. Uh, yeah, so every night was a different drum kit. It didn't matter. It was Tama, Pearl, pieced together drums, whatever. And most of the time, uh, I'd end up breaking a lot of these things because a lot of the stuff was duct taped together or the, the, the hardware was cheap or the heads were been on there for two, three years or four years. And I'd play it like how I play it. And then the guy would be like, my drums. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I would try to get some money, like whatever money we make at the end of the night and give some money or just give him a ton of beer or whatever, I go, I'm, I don't, I'm sorry, you know? Yeah. I'd have to take it easy or whatever, but I just, I just let loose and just play, you know? Well, when you, once you get going, you, you can't help yourself, can you? It's like, yeah. you know, you can't do things half-assed. So basically I thought touring life was like that always. I'm always thinking like, how do people have their own drums over here? Oh yeah, they have money. We don't. <laughs> um, but I've always been appreciative and always thankful that, you know, these bands were cool. Mm. And these drummers were cool enough to let me use their drums, you know. Yeah, I was thanked them in the night and did whatever I could to, you know, show gratitude and be thankful. You know, to this day I still like, you know, if it's ever mentioned, I, 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 I wish I could remember all all the drummers that lent me the kit. But I'm always gonna say thank you. Yeah, always. So going back to Nausea, you've just done your first European tour. What else happened with you guys? Would it be fair for me to say that was your first real band that you're in love with? Like, as in, like, you guys were starting to take off. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, def it was definitely my first, my first band I, I, I got to do all of that with, you know, real recording, a real tour. So, I mean, I, I have a very special, I have a very special love with every band I've ever been in. Yeah. You know, for many different reasons. But with Nausea, though, I, I, that's, that's like, that's really special. 
Yeah. And we've gone on to do some really cool stuff, you know. Um, we did actually toured Europe twice, and we put out a bunch of seven inches after that. But then, unfortunately, the band, you know, breaks up. You know, people don't get along. People just kind of go, you know. And we just kind of just faded away. But we're still, we're still friends now, though. I mean, that was 30 years ago. So whatever, whatever we're bummed out on each other about, we're not anymore. I never had a problem with anyone in the band. There's a certain couple of individuals in the band that had a thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, okay. But now, now I think everyone's cool. Everyone's, you know, a lot older and wiser and smarter. And yeah. Whatever was bothering us then doesn't bother us anymore. But we all look back on on that on that time and and just you know, we're proud of it. Yeah. Because a lot of kids today are still actually even acknowledging it and listening to it. I see kids with the nausea logo on their jackets most of the time it's it's amazing that the band has carried on this long like the band is cared for more now than it was then which is wild it's amazing how that happens like we ended up becoming a patch in a t-shirt yeah <laughs> so if that happens to you then you're good <laughs> <laughs> didn't wasn't like billy eilish or someone wearing a nausea t-shirt recently or something she was yeah that's crazy and i and i asked around like does she know what nausea is and she I, I think she knows now, but I think at the time, from what I heard, uh, the, the stylist is, an, is a person from the scene and put these patches on her stuff, which I thought was great, you know? And maybe Billy knows about it now. Maybe she likes it, you know? I hope, you know? That's how you know you're in a cool band when stylists start giving out those T-shirts to their clients. I love Billie Eilish. I mean, like, I, think she, I mean, before she even had the patch on, I mean, I, I got into her through my daughter. My daughter loves Billie Eilish. I'm like, who is this? Like, her music, I think I like her music. What yeah. her and her brother do is great. She's amazing. But that was a shocker to wake up to that. I bet. I the, my phone blew up with this, dude, dude, dude. I'm like, oh my God. God. <laughs> Cool. That must have got some seriously cool dad points <laughs> from your daughter, right? Yeah. So we're in nausea. You guys are kind of like decided to go your separate ways. What's next for Roy Mayorga? Well, then we, then John, John and I, bass player, we ended up starting another band called Thorn, which was a little bit more electronic driven. Had a lot, we had a lot of samplers. They had this industrialish kind of edge to our music and mixed with a bit of metal. We had the guitar player from Winter, another local New York band, kind of a doom metal band. He ended up joining. So we had a three piece for a couple of years. Uh, we made one record, put it out on Roadrunner Records, and then again, and we just kind of just faded away and just, you know, I, I ended up going off doing other things and engineering, sound engineering more and playing with other bands. And they continue on without me. And then eventually we just, you know, they just stopped. But that worked out for a while. Um, we played a bunch, a handful of shows. We didn't do, we didn't get to do a lot. Didn't, didn't. Didn't get to do as much as I would like to, but um, I ended up actually joining uh, a band called Crisis right. for a little while. Uh, made a record with them, well, with three other drummers. Chris Hamilton was on it. Jason Bittner from Shadows Fall was also on this oh, record. Wow. Ended up be, he ended up being their drummer. Right. Um, and while I was doing that, I was Shelter's touring drummer. 
Right. I don't know if you remember Shelter, Harry Krishna, hardcore band. Right. Ex-members of Youth Today, uh, Ray, Ray Capo and uh, John Purcell. Um, played with them for a little while. This was like in 96 and helping them in support of their album at the time on Roadrunner called Mantra. Uh, I did like a European tour with them. I did an American tour with them. Uh, I went to Brazil with them for the first time. And this is like pre-Soulfly. Uh, so, and actually right after Shelter, I joined Soulfly. Were the two related, the, the trip to Brazil? And is that what led to you joining Soulfly? No. Um, we actually did play a couple shows together in Europe, uh, Sepultura and, and Shelter, but that wasn't the reason. I knew Max from before, from when I was in Nausea, Max and Igor. We all met each other through uh, Sick of It All guys uh, at this place in New York called The Ritz. They were, I think we're all, they were all on tour together. It was like Napalm Death, Sick of It All. Wow. Sepultura. Wow, what a tour. So they were, they, you know, they were, they, were, they were punk fans and we were fans of Sepultura, so, you know, we became friends from there. And I would I would be on and off in touch with Max here and there, and I actually ended up doing a, a remix at the time. You know, when remixes were were, were a thing, yeah. in the early '90s. I, I miss remixes. I do too. <laughs> I did this tribal like house techno remix for uh, Refuse Resist on accident. Actually, I was just I, the reason why that happens because I just bought an Akai S1000 with the advance money that we got from from the the record deal we got with thorn for roadrunner so i bought this akai s1000 sampler i just wanted to i just wanted to test it and sample things and see how it sounded compared to the mirage and sonic mirage 8-bit sampler i had which was pretty crappy but now i, I love that sampler because you can mangle the fuck out of sounds on that thing <laughs> but i wanted something a little bit clearer so i got the akai the first thing I sampled was the opening drum intro to Refuse Resist, and I had it on loop. I was like, wow, this is cool. And I started actually maybe speeding it up just a hair. Right. And then I, and I took a 909 kick sample and put it underneath that. I'm like, ooh, this is really cool. And then I started taking Sergio Mendez samples and drum fills, and I started recording myself doing drum fills and then started layering this thing. And I had this like eight, this eight measure thing of the remix and i and i'm like i think i got something here it sounds different so then i sent that to monty connor the, the sepultura's a and r guy right um who's also you know i knew really well because of uh the roadrunner i go what do you think of this he's like this is pretty cool what is this what did, how'd you do this and i explained to him how i did it and he's like and he's like what do you want to do with it i'm like i don't know what do you want to do with it i think this would be cool <laughs> With all these remixes are coming out, what, what do you think of have doing a you know me doing a remix for Sepultura? And he's like, "Well, let me check with the guys." And he sent it to the guys, and the guys like, "Yeah, man, they're like they're totally fired up for you to do it." What do you need? I go, "Well, I need I, I need other ways of sampling without having the other instruments." And and he gave me the multi tracks. Right. So I got the multi track reels. I went to a recording studio, took my DAT player and made a pass of just drums, just guitars, just vocals and whatever. And I went back home and sampled everything and mangled it and Incredible. made that remix. So from there, that's where Max was like, yo, we should do something together one of these days, you know, like, yeah, it'd be great. You know, and then a few years later, I get the call to, to do Soul, Soulfly with them. That's how that happened. And it was, just him and, it was just him and I for the first few months. Uh, we only had 
four songs. I think he had like Eye for an Eye, No, and a couple other songs that didn't make the cut of the record, but I think ended up being on 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 uh, Back to the Primitive. Back to the Primitive was actually one of the songs as a demo on this four song demo he gave me. Right. Um, so when we got together, we jammed on those songs on the demo. And of course, you know, Sepultura songs, because he wanted to see how I would do with that. And jammed, you know, Black Flag, Discharge, or just, you know, just fucked around for first few weeks. And then I went back home. I came back. He ended up, and he, he got uh, Marcelo to play bass. And then it was the three of us. And then he got Lucio from Chico Science, and it was the four of us. And then we, that, that's when we started really developing. And then we got Ross Robinson in the picture, who really helped us with all of it, you know. How did you feel when you got that call from Max? Oh, man, I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is great. You know, something new and different. You know, I can you know, get, get out of New York for a minute and go to where he is in Phoenix and jam with him and, you know, see how this goes, you know. I was really excited about that when I got the call. And I got to explore another way of drumming, another style, you know. Yeah. What was great, though, is like at that time, I was really into, I was really into Moroccan music and Burundi. Because from 1990 till about that time, like when I first started working at Tower Records, I worked in the world music department in the, in the really? tapes. <laughs> so my first introduction and gateway to the whole, you know, world music was the Peter Gabriel's uh, Last Temptation of Christ and Passion Sources record. So that opened the whole thing. And I was just listening to that all day as I'm, you know, ringing in customers, listening to Moroccan music, Egyptian music, and just the drumming and the sounds of that. And I just always wanted to incorporate something like that into my drumming. But the bands I was in at the time didn't really, there wasn't any real room to do that. No. So when I joined Soulfly, I was able to take those elements I already had in here and, and and make it more out here. And plus hearing all the Brazilian music that Max loaded me up with really opened that door even more and made me do other things mixed with all that other stuff that was in my head. Yeah, so your remix in, your time at Tower Records in the world music section is like quite pivotal to Soulfly's sound, man, which is a really instantly recognizable sound as well. It was, a, it was a great time. It was a great time, man. It was one of the best times of my life, you know. Look at this. It's called a sampler. Look, look, you do this. Yeah, yeah, you hear that? Every chorus, bang, bit of impact. And then we did it. Oh, hang on. No, sorry. I don't know how to turn this off yet. Is it it's one of these? Something like that. Right. What do you reckon? Gives a bit of an edge. Do you remember a specific time or a gig or show where you thought I've made it out of the independent scene? When I joined Soulfly. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember, actually, I can remember my first time playing my first festival in front of a million tons of people was the Shelter gig opening up for Venom and Dynamo. I got that feeling, but I got that feeling even more with Soulfly once I I walked out on stage with them and just feeling the whole power of the crowd and power of the band in front of me and just counting them in like that power i felt that and and that's where i felt that especially uh playing big day out with soulfly for the first time yeah in australia for the first time that's where i had that feeling right for sure yeah i look back on that show every now and then it was like one of the greatest days of my life it was awesome yeah um it's probably difficult for you to answer this question because you started so early but do you ever remember a point where you were you like, I'm a musician now? Mm, I think I would, I don't know if I would think that, but that's just something that you instinctively subconsciously think anyway. I don't outwardly say I'm a musician. Yeah. Uh, it's more like you, 
yeah. I mean, if I, if I tell, if I, people ask me, what do I do now? Like, what, what, what are you? What do you do for a living? I'd say, I'm a musician. I would, I would say that now. Yeah. Back then, I would, I would just say, hey, I'm in a band, you know. <laughs> I, think, I think now, it's, I, I use the term properly more now than I would have then. That's a good answer, actually. No one else has ever actually said, oh, back in the day, I would have said I'm in a band, but now I'd say I'm a musician. That's a really good answer, actually. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry for jiggling this thing. This, this bed's really bouncy. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> so what would you say is the worst gig you've ever done? <laughs> the worst gig? I try not to think about that. <laughs> I try not to remember those. Um, I think the worst one that I'm thinking of right now is 2006 with Stone Sour in Japan. I can't remember the name of the festival right now at the top of my head, um, but I had food poisoning. All right. The night before, we just got there like two days before this gig. We, we were in the middle of a tour with Corn for Family Values, so we had like a, during that week to go and play Japan. Can't remember the name of the festival, but it's definitely online. It's on YouTube. Um, so we, you know, twelve-hour flight. We get there. You know, when you fly for that long, your immune system is just yeah. But you're not thinking of that. You're just thinking you're fucking hungry as shit. So <laughs> me and the band and the rest of the crew, we went to Korean barbecue. All right. We all had steak tartare with a quail egg on it. Wow. Fancy. That was that was the appetizer. <laughs> Who got the lucky egg? <laughs> Never ate it ever again. So the next morning I wake up, it was like is like interview press day. Okay. I missed out on that whole day. I was really bummed and I was feeling like shit. Literally. Um, so I woke up just freaking projectiling everywhere. I was Linda Blair for like the first few hours waking up. And I, I called the tour manager. I'm like, I got food poisoning. What'd you eat? I go, the same thing you guys ate. Well, none of us are six. So you must have got the bed egg, mate. This, is, <laughs> this, guy, this guy was from Birmingham. His name was Gaza. He was our tour manager. Um, he, was, he was amazing. He, 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 uh, he kept everything in line. Um, so he's like, well, you just stay in for, you know, and... We'll do everything without you and hopefully you feel better next day. So the whole day, I was just, you know, out both ends the whole fucking day. Fuck. All right. It sucks. <laughs> the next morning, I was still still feeling a little bit shit, but I was better and I was able to play. So we get to the venue. It's outdoors. It's 98 degrees. I'm just oh. like, oh, my God. And humid. So I'm like, this sucks. This can't get any worse. So then... My drum tech at the time, man, I feel really bad. He had to deal with this, but he had the bucket next to next oh, to me. Oh no! In between clogs, just like <clears throat> that, <to> keep playing. <laughs> and that was definitely one of the worst shows. I can hear myself struggling playing. I can hear myself speed. The songs are faster, right? Because I have no, I have no control. I have, I'm trying to keep it down. Everything's just fucking fast, you know. And yeah, just chucking in between songs. It was horrible. That was probably one of the worst shows. So what would you say is the best gig you've ever done? The best gig? Yeah. Um, as of lately, I think one of the best gigs I've ever experienced was that last gig with Nine Inch Nails. With, uh, I was playing with Ministry now. We just opened up for them uh, in September. It was the last show of their tour. And it was, the, it was the weekend of their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And that, to me, was probably one of the best shows. Wow. That I could think of right now. That I had the best time. That was a tight, that was a really tight show. Everyone sounded on point and everyone was in a great, in great uh, spirits and the band just clicked, you know, 
I'm really fortunate and lucky to be playing with those guys. Everybody in that band is great. How long ago was it that you got a call from ministry? Um, 2016. Yeah. When Corey was in between Stone Sour and Slipknot when there was nothing going on there. Yeah. That's when I got the call. And I've been the drummer on and off since then. And uh, once, uh, obviously, once Stone Sour uh, fired back up in 17, I ended up, obviously went back and uh, you know recorded and toured. And then once that was over again, I went went to uh, actually ended up playing with Hell Yeah, and uh, stepping in for for Vinny Vinny Paul. And then after that, I went back to the ministry. How was the Hell Yeah shows? That was great, bittersweet. Yeah, um, must have been quite emotional. Definitely, because um, it was basically uh, just a celebration of his life. The tour was based around that. It was the, the video montage for him in between during the set. It was very emotional. I felt bad for all those guys and you know, and all of Vinny's friends and his family. It just sucks, you know. And I knew him really well, and it's a good friend of mine. Definitely strange to to be playing his parts with his band and i'm sure it was strange for them to like turn around look and wasn't him it was me you know what i mean but we did it and we did it for him and and to honor the record because they just recorded the record they just released it so it was good it was, it was a good uh, send off for him and they must have like well really trust you to you know i mean it must have been quite an honor for you to to have got that call well i was hesitant at first to do it i'll tell you that oh yeah i totally understand i bet i bet yeah, strange for me but they they were they were they were sure and confident that you know i can do it and they said well Vinny would want you to do it so you gotta do it like there you go and uh his stuff isn't easy man you know (laughs) when he plays it it's no one plays like him he's and i mean listening to him is one thing but actually watching him doing it and hearing how he's doing these parts like i i had videos that their videographer had given me so I could see how he does certain things. Mm-hmm. And I watched old Pantera videos, old drum cam videos from him from behind. He leads a lot with his left sometimes. While he's playing righty, he'll switch to leading with his left. It's, it's wild. And you had to do it that way. Otherwise, it's not going to sound yeah. right. I mean, in my eyes. Absolutely. So, so, so it was a challenge trying to learn it like that. And because normally I, I would lead my right. Or I start something with my, if I do double bass, I'll start something with the right. He starts some stuff with his left, his left foot. Like, for instance, like, I still can't do it right. Um, becoming is led with the left foot. And you're leading with your right hand. It's the most fucked up drum beat ever. It's impossible. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but no one's going to make it sound like that guy. I can remember one time... Being on the road with Hell Yeah, Stone Sour and Hell Yeah, and I'm in my my dr- in the dressing room on my practice kit. And I'm actually tr- like just painfully trying to play that becoming drum beat. He walks by the dressing room. He never called me by my first name. He always called me by my last name. He's like, Marga. I'm like, what? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? I'm like trying to play play your drum beat. He's like, yeah, that's bad. Give me the. He's like, give me those sticks. That's how you do it. He gets on, he gets behind a kid, and he shows me exactly how he does it. It was mind blowing how he just started really slow, and then he just did it right to the speed. I go, I don't know, man. He's like, he's like, he's like, man, you can do it. He's like, but when you get it, man, it feels good. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll never get it. <laughs> he's like, keep practicing, man. You'll get it. He's good. Yeah, he was. It was. It was. He was an architect, wasn't he? The way he wrote drum parts and stuff. Yeah, 
I mean, he, he, he totally came up with a whole new sound on drums. I mean, just by putting the quarters on his kicks or does Danmark click pads, whatever, mixing it with a D drum, you know, AT uh, with internal mics. Like that was his sound. Yeah. You know? Because he'd done a lot of engineering as well, didn't he, on all the records? Yeah. That scooped Tom sound. That's all his, you know? Unreal. I went as far as, you know, doing that with, with Hell Yeah, I used his sample sounds with my drums as he would and use the same kind of mics and actually made my drums even bigger. So it sounds like kind of like his tone, you know, that's yeah. why I play a 16 and 18. Now I, I, I just, I haven't went back since, uh, back to normal sizes since playing with hell. Yeah. I kind of stuck with the 16 and 18. I always wanted to play the 16 and 18. I just never had, I was never part of a band that, <clears throat> that, acquired that you know but now i i, I use that in ministry and I, it sounds great with them because there's a lot of tom work a lot of tribal drumming in some of the older songs that we do yeah so it works great and the drums are like do do god do do god do do god and the bass comes in yeah everyone got that what would you say is the most proudest moment of your career i don't know it's, it's really hard to it's really hard to pinpoint you know um, definitely had a lot of proud moments. Um, I think that one of the proudest moments in my career <clears throat> now, like something a, a, additional to my career is scoring my first movie, which was the Studio 666. Yeah, the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. I mean, that for me is one of my proudest moments and be able to, to go do the red carpet with those guys and be at Man's Chinese in LA premiering the film. I mean, it, it doesn't get me better than that for me. That's everything I ever, you know, dreamt of, you know, and being alongside um, uh, as a film score, being alongside John Carpenter, who did the theme song for the music for the film is like, still, I can't believe that it's mind blowing to me because I grew up listening and watching Carpenter's films like he's probably one of the biggest influences on what I do as a composer, people like him. Uh, women like Wendy Carlos who did The Shining, like those movies, like really had an impact on me as a you know, as a kid. The Shining, Halloween, Halloween Two, The Fog. Um, those are important films and scores to me. I mean, I, it's all my inspiration from those films. So for me to have my name next to his in, in the in the same film, it's it still blows my mind. Like, I couldn't believe it. Because originally, when I signed on to do this film, it wasn't supposed to be a full feature. It was supposed to be just a 40-minute short in promoting uh, Foo Fighters' last record. So when the pandemic hit, there was more time involved, and that's when they came up with the idea to make it a full feature film. So I was, damn, this is even better. So that means this will be in theaters. Like, yeah, like, great. Awesome. And then weeks later into as I'm working, they tell me that John Carpenter is going to do the theme song. Are you cool with that? I'm like, yeah. Are you kidding me? I was, I was beside myself. I couldn't believe it. Like John Carpenter is going to do the theme. And it was great. Like him and his his sons um, did the theme song. Another great uh, trio. If anyone's ever never had a chance to see John Carpenter live, you have to go see them live. It's Cody Carpenter, Daniel Davies, and the full band. And they play all the themes loud. Great. Boys, I'm so sorry I'm so late. The buses were, and there was like, oh, and I could see you bought in all the equipment already. That is not cool. Who's beers, those? I'm fucking gasping. Let's rock. 
All right, man. This one's called The Fight or Four Way. It's a little bit sort of... It's music related, but it's a bit off subject in a way. First question is, if you were a wrestler or a fighter of any form, what would your entrance music be? <laughs> oh, it'd have, to be, it'd have to be the Terminator theme. Nice. The original. Yeah. The original, 1984 Terminator theme. That's an excellent choice. <laughs> <laughs> Gang, 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 gang. <laughs> Mate, that's sick. That would work so well. Yeah. There you go. Okay, question two. What is the greatest TV theme tune of all time, intro or outro? Wow, I have a couple. Uh, yeah, have as many as you like. Okay, 1970s Doctor Who. You're the third person that's picked Doctor Who. That's the other thing, because as a kid, hearing synthesizers for the first time, I was really into that mm -hmm. because of that. I mean, that's that's the greatest, darkest, weirdest theme song ever. So good. It's Nothing so has good. ever come close to it before or after that for Doctor Who. So right. It's the best Doctor Who theme intro. Oh, absolutely. Ever. It's the classic one. It's, it's, it's the one that if you were going to play a theme from Doctor, got Doctor Who from any of them over the years, you would play that one. Yeah. I want to say, I think it was made with a, a VCO uh, Putney EMS vco3 i think it's made of vco3 oh really what i heard was i had a band on here called hot wax this great young band coming up from the uk and they picked doctor who and they said that there was it was also played with an elastic band one one of the tracks is a, just an elastic band apparently i think there's a i think there's a youtube documentary on how that was made i need to look at that again right so do I, I i'm sure vc vco3 was definitely used in there and also for the weird sound effects throughout um the other one. Oh my god um man there's so many star trek the 60s yeah another great show star trek, twilight zone yeah 60s twilight zone and keep going um sanford and son quincy jones man yes i don't know sanford and son it's a sitcom from the 70s right maybe you guys can get into that. okay this is a controversial question not a lot of people like answering this but i seem to get the best answers out of it what song would you like played at your funeral? Oh, that's that's pretty difficult. <laughs> uh, what song would I want played at my funeral? Wow, anything, right? Anything. Um, my playlist would be massive. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> um, I'll be "Shine on You Crazy Diamond" by Pink Floyd. Ah, oh, beautiful. The whole thing, entirety. Okay, and last question: What advice would you give to a young? Roy Mayorga. Don't care about what other people say. Do what you do. Believe in what you do. Be confident. Walk forward. Nice. I'm going to make a meme out of that with your face on it. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Roy, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, man. This is great. Just make me look cool. Yeah. <laughs> hey, mate, that's effortless. <laughs> All right, indeed. So good to see you, man. You too, my brother. All right, Roy. Take care. Peace out. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye, mate. All right, homie. Bye-bye. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. And there you have it. Roy Mayorga, ladies and gentlemen. What an absolute legend. And yes, he was genuinely still in bed. Back in the 90s on VHS, you had In Bed with Madonna. 
But right here on all streaming platforms, you add in bed with Roy Mayorga. You're welcome. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Roy for giving us his time and sharing his journey with us. It was such a privilege to sit there and listen to him tell us about all the old days, right up to present day. And, you know, that guy genuinely is one of the best rock and metal drummers in the world. He's one of the best drummers in the world, period. So if you ever get the opportunity to see Roy in any of his bands, take it. The man is a monster. And if you don't believe me, go follow him on Instagram at Roy Mayorga. And then you'll say to yourself, yeah, Chaz wasn't lying. I knew he wouldn't lie to me. He doesn't seem like a liar. Anywho, during that episode, you would have heard tracks from Roy's first ever band, Youthquake, which isn't available on Spotify, but it is available on YouTube. And if you wanted to check that out, I'll make sure to put a link on both the Instagram and Facebook page of the Band Before the Band Before podcast. You would have also heard tracks from New York hardcore legends Nausea, which is available on all streaming platforms. Actually, I don't know if it's available on all streaming platforms, but it's certainly on Spotify. If you don't already know, go check them out. Legendary band. You can also find Roy's drumming skills on the early Soulfly records. I believe that Roy is about to hit the road with Industrial Legends Ministry. And he's in this other band. Stone Sour? I jest, of course. They're fucking massive. And that was a shit joke, so sorry about that. And obviously, you can find their back catalogue on all streaming platforms. And it's awesome. Shout out to Johnny Chow if you're listening, by the way. And that's about a wrap on episode 7. I want to say a massive thank you to Roy again for being such an awesome guest. And I want to say a massive thank you to you. Yeah, you who's listening right now. Every single one of you. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us, hit us up at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show. Or if you've got any band stories you'd like to share, I'd love to hear them. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on both Instagram and Facebook at the band before the band before. So that's it for this episode. Thank you all again so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it enough to join us at the next one. I'll leave you with the words of the great philosopher, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. It's not a tumor. And don't forget, there's seven days in a week. That's not an Arnie quote. Bye!